This sermon has um, come as the Lord impressed my mind. And my wife and I know that when we study together, God always drops another nugget in our laps. While I was on vacation, I said to myself, I'm just going to disconnect and not really do church stuff. But I had a school board meeting in the foyer of the hotel, and I read devotions each day. And when you do that, you can't hide from God. God knows exactly what he wants to impart to us. And so I was sitting there in our hotel room with the ocean just about 50 feet outside the window, writing down all these new sermons. This sermon, that sermon, can't wait to get back. So I'm back now. I feel a lot more energized. I got a good dose of vitamin D, not from a bottle, but from the sun. My limbs are oiled from swimming, and my mind is clear. And I simply want to do God's will. So this morning, bow your heads with me as we unpack what I consider a God-born message entitled Stained Glass. Bow your heads with me. Gracious Father, loving Lord, how beautiful it is to know that music can elevate our minds. Music can open the door for the holy and the unholy. And we thank you today that you have used music to open the door to say to your Holy Spirit, you are welcomed here. We invite the refiner's fire today to speak to our hearts. We invite your presence to make this message abundantly clear. And may the outcome be a people ignited, not consumed, set on a blaze for the glory of God, not for the consummation of their souls. And may you send into the hearts and minds of your people this beautiful commission to go forth and light the world with the beauty of your love, your greatness, and your gospel message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to begin with the scripture reading. It's foot from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 19. 2 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 19. And it is on the screen, but if you have your Bible, that's a good place to turn because that's the original source. The apostle Peter, now converted, communicates to us a message that has not been hindered but has grown in relevance and importance as time has continued to roll. He's speaking not only to his generation, but he's speaking to our generation because he's talking about something that God has affected that will continue to work until time is no more. And he says to us in 2 Peter 1 and verse 19, And so... We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And he says, wait, wait on it until the day dawns 
and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, wait on it. When you study God's word, when you allow prophecy to unfold, he is saying, wait on it. It's going to become clearer. It may be dark right now. It may have been dark when Peter wrote this because much of what was yet to unfold in prophecy was way beyond his day, and Peter went to his death, not seeing many of the prophecies even being fulfilled, but he said, wait on it. Because we have a more sure word of prophecy. Praise God. Wait on it. Because what God has said will come to pass. I am firmly convinced that we are living in the closing scenes of the great controversy. And because of that, Satan is unveiling the strategies that he has compiled together for the last 6,000 years. Just think about that. If you had 6,000 years to study the movements of God, what would you glean from that? What would you say as the nemesis of God, I want to undo that. I want to reverse that. I want to get rid of that because it doesn't fit into my plans. From the dust of his defeat in heaven, Satan has been taking notes. I'm convinced of that. He has studied the movements of God determined to reverse everything that God has affected for good. And we're living in the day and age, thousands of years ahead of his initial claim, I will be like the Most High. We're living in the day and age and in a time where Satan is determined that before he goes out in a blaze of glory, he is going to put forth every effort to reverse everything that God has affected for the glory of his name. So let's begin in the beginning. Let's unpack this story about stained glass. Let us see what notes Satan has been taking and how he wants to reverse everything that God has established for good. Let us begin in the beginning. We go to Genesis chapter 1 and we read verse 2, these words. And the Bible says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I would have loved to have been there to see God do his thing. I would have loved to have been there to see God say what he was about to say. I wonder how long he thought about his first statement. I wonder if God said to his, his executive committee, this is the first thing I'm going to say tomorrow morning. I think about that. That's my mind. It's a little messed up, but I think in the, in the linear way, because God had to think about that first word because he says, somebody is going to write it down and say, this is what I said, the power of the word of God. So looking at this place that was dark and without form and void, to eradicate darkness, God did what only he can do. And he said in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, then God said, let's join him in his proclamation. Are you ready? 
Let there be light. And there was light. God turned on the light. Can you imagine what that must have been like? To see before the universe, to see that somewhere the unfallen worlds picked up a new pulse of a light being turned on in the, the limitless space of God's playground. They said, God just turned on a light. It must be the email he sent out yesterday. He's building a new galaxy, the Milky Way, as we call it. God is building a new home for his creation. Let there be light, and the light came on. One of the very first changes that God affected in the creation of the world is the very change that Satan has sought to reverse. God turned on the light, but Satan wants to turn off the light. God deals in bright. Satan deals in dark. God deals in truth. Satan deals in error. So when God turned on the light to give man the ability to see what he was about to do, Satan determined it will be my subtle purpose to reverse what God just did. And we read in specifics what God did. Because remember, when God saw the planet, it was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. What did God specifically do? Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 4. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the, what is the next word? From the darkness. God did not turn darkness into light because you can't make good out of evil. He eradicated the darkness by expelling it with light. He eliminated the darkness by introducing the light. God made a distinction between that which is dark and that which is light. God separated the darkness from the light. Now, if you're following me, you know that one of Satan's plans is to merge darkness with light. That's why it's called deception. It could not deceive you unless there is some element of light in it. And so he would take the, the word Sabbath and link it to a dark day, a day that has nothing to do with what God had blessed. He takes light and mingles it with phrases that could cause that light to be diminished ever so unperceptibly consistent. And so it gets to the place where that which is bright, Satan takes the potentiometer of a, of a, of a knob and he begins to slowly turn the brightness of God's Word down until as the light is going down and the eyes are adjusting to it, it's almost imperceptible until the room is dark and we say, how did it get so dark without me even noticing about it? That's why when I think about this very thing that God did, dividing light from darkness, and we're living in a generation where Satan has found clever and distinct ways of merging darkness with light and then making it palatable, making it acceptable, making it a part of the landscape of Christianity, and somehow 
giving it authority over the pure light of God's Word. And more and more, I have increasing appreciation for the words of Jesus when he said, let your light so shine. What he was in essence saying is we have been given the commission. We have been given the directive to allow the light of God's glory in our lives to shine in a world that has been modified, that has been dumbed down, where good is called evil and evil is called good. God is saying, I'm saying to you, let your light so shine. But I want you to think about that light for a moment. Because when Jesus said, let your light so shine, it is far more profound than just simply saying, let my character be seen or let the truth of God's word be seen. What, what he was in essence saying is the reason why you've got to let your light continue to shine is because the moment you turn the light off, darkness is waiting for its opportunity to replace light. Have you noticed when you go to bed at night, when you turn the light switch off, the lights don't gradually go off. They go off immediately. Darkness doesn't gradually fill the room. It fills the room how? Immediately. The moment we turn off the light of God's gospel, darkness is immediate. When light is rejected, darkness instantly takes its place. And when we look at the world today, to a large degree, the enemy of truth has been amazingly successful. He has used creative and deceptive methods to merge darkness and light together. But I want to invite you today to go with me on a journey. I want to take you back 900 years. I want you to go back with me to the 12th century, to what has been described as the golden age of Gothic architecture. And we're going to tap a man on the shoulder by the name of Abbot Suger, S-U-G-E-R. He was considered Abbot Suger of St. Denis. He was called the father of stained glass. Somehow he first conceptualized the use of stained glass windows, and as he terms it, he wanted to create heavenly light. What kind of light did I say? Now, I want you to look to your left and right. If you see somebody sleeping, just nudge them. Because you can sleep when you go home. You ain't sleeping on this sermon. Because while I'm trying to illuminate you, the devil is trying another creative way of turning off the light. He decided that I'm going to conceptualize the use of stained glass, and he says... I want to create something called heavenly light. And then he says, so that the presence of God could be seen in the church. That was his concept. And as I read the story, the Abbey Church of St. Denis near Paris was described as having, as the historians say, the most radiant windows to illuminate men's minds so that they may travel through the stained glass to an apprehension of God's light. Abby Sugura said he wants men's minds to look at this different colored glass, as you see in the background, and imagine a God of varying colors and degrees. And he had some pretty good foundation because he studied the scriptures where 
It referred to the rainbow of God and the many, many colors represented in the rainbow. So he sought to duplicate and replicate the glory of God in the beauty of stained glass. And stained glass, if you've ever seen stained glass in a large cathedral, it is beautiful. My wife and I had a chance to go to, to Notre Dame there in Europe to that amazing cathedral. We went in France. We went to uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City and a number of other cathedrals around the world. And when you walk in, you are met by this grand light show, this glorious stained glass that seems to bring you to an atmosphere in your mind of this is a very holy place. And so Abbot Sugir was able to accomplish, and still to this very day, when people walk into a cathedral, these grand, tall cathedrals like the cathedral in Washington, Washington, D.C., they feel this sense of holiness because they believe that the light coming through those stained glass says something about the character of God. And so on the heels of this creation, medieval churches began to use stained glass, and historians say for two reasons. The first reason, they said, they use it for its spiritual quality, but follow me carefully. The second reason caught my attention. They said they also use it for its sensual appeal. They said there was something about the glass that had a sensual appeal. When ministers couldn't get people into the churches, the stained glass did. When they couldn't, by advertising, get the people in the building, the stained glass did. Let me, let me fast forward 900 years. That's why today many of the modern churches are nothing more than a light show. I've looked at some of these churches, these worship centers, and it's filled with lights of varying colors. They're not using it for the sense of accenting holiness. They're using it to seduce the atmosphere to make you feel that you're in a holy place when there's anything but the holy word of God being proclaimed. It's the same concept. Create an atmosphere where people feel holy, but God's truth is not really found there. When you study how stained glass affected the cathedrals, when you study how stained glass played a major role in the medieval churches, uh, you found that to get the people inside the churches and cathedrals, they adorned these massive walls of glass with colored glass. Not only did the sustained or the stained glass arouse curiosity, but the people were told to appreciate it. And the bishops and the popes and the cardinals and the abbey leaders saw that it was necessary the stained glass was necessary to get the people on the inside of the building. And because electricity was not yet invented, the cathedrals were by nature dark on the inside. I want you to follow me carefully. I'm laying the groundwork here. Without the light coming in, it was dark. But look at the, look at the twist. The darker the church the more dazzling and attractive the stained glass appeared. The darker the inside of the building, the more they incorporated the use of stained glass because it shone better. A beautiful light show. So now you see today why a lot of these quote-unquote buildings, worship centers, churches, incorporate all the use of light because there's no light in the pulpit. 
You study it further, and I did a little deep study. I like to read a lot. They said, although they had candles, candles were kept to a minimum because the stained glass was not, was not only visibly appealing, the stained glass was, be, they began to design it to instruct the people on what to believe. So they began to actually design the glass to teach certain scriptural stories the way they wanted the story to be taught. That's why you see Mary with a baby. And they say, Mary had a little lamb, Jesus. His fleece was white as snow. Anywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. They established Mary in the stained glass and made it appear during the medieval times that Jesus followed Mary rather than Mary followed Jesus. And you found in many cathedrals this large stained glass with Mary and Jesus and she was placed with the one with the halo around her head. And he was the little lamb following her wherever she went. Medieval churches were not popularized by the reading of the Bible, but they were popularized by the abandonment of the Bible. Bibles were chained to the altars. They were not in multiple supply like today. And you discover during the medieval times, the truths of the Bible were just as distorted as the light that was filtered through the stained glass. Stained glass was the main attraction of the churches of medieval times, and now you know why they call it the Dark Ages. Stained glass was the main attraction of the churches of medieval times. Now you know why they call it the Dark Ages. Brethren, anytime you use anything to substitute the beauty of the brightness of God's Word, it is also a manifestation of the dark ages. Today we're living in a time where stained glass has taken on a new meaning. When I went further into study of this, I found out there was a particular quality about stained glass that makes it deceptively attractive. I'm going to take it to the next level now. Follow me carefully. Although the source of light remained unchanged, meaning outside of the cathedral, the sun was just as bright as it would be on any other cloudless day. The, the, the source of light remained unchanged, but the stained glass vastly altered the way that people saw the light. I want you to follow me carefully. The Word of God hasn't changed. But when you alter God's Word by putting something between the pure light and the way that it is received, it appears to be vastly different. And I'll share with you in four points what I mean by that. The results were, it makes the altered light look more attractive than the original light. Follow me today. It's really deep. It's kind of one you got to get your shovel out to dig deeply into this sermon because it's going to take you some places that your mind is not naturally going. So when they, when they filled the cathedrals as they did, it was no longer that attractive. They didn't go outside and look up at the sun and say, wow, what a beautiful sun. They said, wow, what beautiful stained glass. Not realizing that without the sun, the stained glass couldn't be seen. Let me break 
that down. Let me unpack that. Satan uses today the purity of the light of God's Word and puts between it and the minds of the hearers something to make it seem more attractive when in fact he's dumbing down the light and making you think that because he uses a different delivery system, that is better than the original. The delivery systems nowadays, some of them would be emotion. If I could get them to be emotional, they'll feel a whole lot more holy than those who simply sit still. The light may look pleasing to the eye. Another thing about stained glass, it, it filtered out the life-giving rays of the sun. You could not get vitamin D by sitting in the cathedrals. Come on, somebody say that. Although the original source had all the vitamin you needed, Satan found a way to take away the nourishment of God's Word by eclipsing it with stained glass. And you can sit there in these gorgeous cathedrals and die of the lack of vitamin D. Amen. Said another way, Satan found creative ways, and I'll share those four points. Satan will find creative ways to eclipse the purity of God's Word, and you're so attracted by the substitutes that you'll slowly die because you think this is a whole lot better than what's outside. Filtering out the nourishment of God's Word till it gets to the point where it no longer contains nourishment. Let me transition and tell you this. It has taken more than 6,000 years, but can I inform you that we are living in the generation of stained glass? How do I know that? Go with me to John chapter 3 and verse 19. My first point. How do I know that we have arrived at the generation of stained glass religion? John 3 and verse 19 makes it abundantly clear how we know that we are living in the generation of stained glass religion. John 3 and verse 19 reads as follows. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love what? Darkness rather than light, because they're what? Their deeds were evil. Let's go ahead and put that stained glass concept there again. When you look at the beauty of this wall behind me, this stained glass, somebody says, come outside and look at the glass from the outside. It doesn't look that beautiful any longer because darkness could never produce beauty. You need light for beauty to appear. So the light of the glory of God, which is shining in the brightness of the sun, and that is why Malachi refers to Jesus as the S-U-N, the son of righteousness. That's where the beauty is coming from. But we're living in an age where men love darkness rather than light, so they, so they gather in large crowds. That's why it's amazing to me what God has allowed to happen. Pause with me for a moment. That's why it is amazing to me that God has allowed, whether you believe it or not, 
Since the early part of 2020, we have been going through something called a pandemic. Whether you believe it's real or not is not my point. But God has shut down many of these places where the devil has tried to keep people in darkness. Now watch what I'm saying. I know what God is doing. He is saying the time has come for me to turn the light back on. That's why when my wife and I go to Walmart and we run into a lady who says by introducing herself, she says, I'm Baptist. We were in Walmart in Carbondale, and a lady came up to me and she says, uh, oh. she stopped me. She says, I want you to know my daughter and I have been watching you since the pandemic struck. She says, I, I attend the Baptist church, but you know, when the pandemic hit, we couldn't go to church, and I ran into your service on YouTube. And I said, well, where's your daughter? And she brought her over. She said, Mama, I told you that was our favorite preacher. Now, I'm not glorifying me. What I, here's what I'm saying. God said, enough of these dark places. I'm going to keep you home if that's what it takes to find the light. To let the light shine. And this lady from Michigan. And the list goes on and on. I mean, we get so many emails and letters from different people that are saying, when the pandemic hit, we found your church. When the pandemic hit, we found 3ABN. When the pandemic hit, we've, we now understand what we couldn't at the other times because they had been content to go into these places where there was nothing but stained glass coming from the podium. Between the purity of God's Word and the stained heart of the people proclaiming it, the light of God's Word was being demolished and people could not see it. And John writes down what Jesus diagnosed. He says, it is not that the light of God's Word does not exist. It is not that the Bible does not exist. But because of the slow seduction of 6,000 years of staining one truth of God's Word after the other, Satan has brought men to the place where they love darkness rather than light. You want to test that? Tell somebody that their loved ones are not in heaven, that they're in the grave. You see the kind of argument. Try to show to them in the Word of God, and they'll fight you. They'll get mad at you. All you're simply doing is turning on the light. But they'll get upset that you're telling them the truth. But I'm thanking God that there are some people that still want to hear the truth. What do you say? Amen. Not everybody's that way, but this is an interesting statement. Servant of the Lord, Ellen White, brings out this very significant point, how in this age where people have embraced darkness, where ministers have embraced darkness, proclaiming it through their stained glass motives, seducing people into thinking that they're in the right place when in fact they're just simply being sequestered from the pure light inside the cathedral of darkness. And the servant of the Lord diagnoses this beautifully. Listen to this. Testimonies, volume 4, page 233 in paragraph 3. She says, In this age of darkness and error, Men who profess to be followers of Christ seem to think that they are at liberty to receive or reject the servants of the Lord at pleasure and that they will not be called to an account for doing so, for so doing. Unbelief and darkness, what two things did I just say? 
Unbelief and darkness lead them to this. She continues, their sensibilities are blunted by their unbelief. Let that sink in. Their sensibilities are blunted. In other words, they, are, they have so turned their minds off to truth that they are unable to even receive it any longer. Their sensibilities are blunted. It's like trying to put a flat key in a round opening. You can't do it. They violate their consciences and become untrue to their own convictions. They know it's right and weaken themselves in moral power. This is the part that got me. They view others in the same light with themselves. They say, you're no different than me. That's why when I got that letter from that cult leader, when I did the series a number of years ago on unclean spirits, he sent me a letter and he said, I'd like to get together with you. If we get together, you would be surprised how many things we have in common. And I thought to myself, I don't have anything in common with a Satan worshiper. But today, Satan has made religion look appealing. But religion that just looks appealing possesses no life-giving power. And God is more concerned about the life-giving power. How many people walk around in the sun every day? Everybody. Yet they never think for a moment when they look up at the blue skies that God painted the skies blue to remind them of his perfect law, the Ten Commandments. In the scriptures you find in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the color blue is a reminder of the Ten Commandments of God. The blue border on the bottom of their robes was a reminder of the commandments of God. God is so determined that men would know his Ten Commandments, he gave them ten fingers. They still deny it. So I want to, you know what I want to do nowadays? I want to put an ad on the newspaper for all the ministers that don't believe in the Ten Commandments. I am conducting a finger-removing ceremony this afternoon. Bring whichever finger you want with you, and I'll gladly cut it off since you don't need it. Ten fingers, ten toes. Is God trying to tell us something? Yes. But they violate their own consciences and become untrue to their own convictions. What, what, what we're being told, what we are being told is that they read the Word of God and they see, if you love me, keep my commandments, and they determine, I am not going to do that, and I'm going to teach others not to do it either. And so they stain their minds and say, stay in here. I'll give you the substitute. Don't go outside because you might discover the pure light. But God is not content to leave his people in darkness. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one fold and one shepherd. How do I know that Satan has been working for 6,000 years on this? Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy these words. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, in what times? Latter times, some will, will depart, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. 
speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. During the Dark Ages, that's what happened. The lie about death was born in the, dark, in the Garden of Eden, but proliferated during the Dark Ages. Purgatory, born in the Garden of Eden, proliferated during the Dark Ages. Everything that has to do with spiritualism was born in the Garden of Eden when Satan lied to Eve that you will not surely die and proliferated during the Dark Ages. That's why when people die today, I'm so sick and tired of hearing people say they're in a better place now. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? I'm so sick and tired on the, when I hear the news, somebody died, well, they're with mama now, well, they're with papa now, or somebody like one of my family members said, my, one, of my, one of my uncles just turned 81, and he had 11 siblings, and he said, well, nine of them are dead, there's only two remaining, and he said, they've already died, they're waiting for me, he said. And I thought to myself, uncle, he's not, they're not waiting for you. One other family member died that loved the Yankees, baseball team, and they said he's in heaven now playing baseball with the Yankees. And I'm thinking, when did God, when did God take the Yankees to, to come on now, help me out. What kind of foolishness? But to make it even more ridiculous, it is saying that these are deceiving spirits. These are doctrines of demons. And the ministers that are propagating this, the Bible says their own consciences are seared with a hot iron. Do you know what that means? That means their sensibilities are so blunted, their consciences are dead. It doesn't even, it doesn't even phase them to say these things. I wanted to educate myself more on this text, and I began to look it up in one of the commentaries, and it said, a seared conscience is a dead conscience. It has been calloused over or hardened so that it cannot perceive anything. When the conscience is seared, the life becomes hypocritical because you become your own standard because God's standard has been rejected. So when people say, as I've heard people say, you know, me and God are cool. I've heard people that refuse to give their lives to Jesus say, me and God, we have an understanding. And I always wonder, what kind of understanding do you have? You're living like the devil. What kind of understanding do you have of God? You're living like hell as a vacation resort. What kind of understanding do you have with God living that way and you dismiss by God and I have an understanding. You know, God and I are on talking terms. You know, I, I know God. Well, who, do, who is it that God doesn't know? Their interpretation of knowing God is not what God considers a righteous relationship. But stained glass. And the Bible describes how the seared conscience would be prevalent in the last days among religion. Look at Isaiah 5 and verse 20. And this was said 700 years before Christ. Now, when you read this text, I want you to grab this. This is what Isaiah the prophet diagnosed 700 years before Christ. Can I ask you a question? Do you think it's better now or worse? 700 years before Jesus was born into the world to save humanity. This is what Isaiah the prophet diagnosed the world to be. Isaiah 5 and verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light 
and light for darkness? Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? And that's what's happening today. If this was happening in the days of the apostle, in the days of Isaiah the prophet, and then Paul came along and says, evil men and seducers will grow worse and worse, and he says, in the latter times, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. If you want to know if whether or not it's gotten bad, ask the devil. Because he'll tell you, I've come down having great wrath because I know I have a short time. I'm walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom I may devour. Brothers and sisters, that is why we need to settle for nothing more than the pure, unadulterated Word of God. Because we're living in an age of stained glass. The Apostle Paul predicted that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13. He says, but evil men, what kind of men, church? Evil men and imposters or seducers, as the King James Version says, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What he's in essence saying is men will not only be content to believe a lie, but they'll publish lies. They'll write lies in a book. They'll proclaim lies from the pulpits. And you know what? If I was only talking about other movements, I think we'd be okay. But the devil is finding ways of getting even in among the Adventist church. That's why Praise God, I had a meeting with Pastor Mark Finley and another gentleman that you may or may not know, Dan Houghton, and we are working collectively with 13 other speakers addressing the major issues that the church is confronted with. And by God's grace, January of 2022, they'll be coming out with a book that is dealing with the major issues that are confronting the worldwide movement of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they've asked me to write the chapter on spiritualism. I already wrote it, but they asked me to add more to the content on a meeting we had a couple of days ago. Let me tell you something. I am so excited to see that there are men, that there are people, that there are leaders, that there are women that are in the church of God that are not sleeping, but they are awake to the times in which we live. So when you see the evil on one side, don't think that that is the general atmosphere everywhere. Don't say the Adventist church has lost its way. That's not the case. But there's some folk that have given heed to seducing spirits, given heed to trying to reinterpret what has already been interpreted and verified by the Word of God. And they will follow in the course of anybody else who loves darkness rather than light. And why is God allowing it to happen? Because God wants a filtered church. He wants a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And like he did in the army of Gideon, he's going to narrow them down from 32,000 to 300. God doesn't need numbers to win. He needs people that are faithful. What do you say? God is saying we're living in the days where imposters, deceivers are worse and worse, publishing deceptions. I've had arguments with people that used to be Adventist. That's the active word, used to be. And somewhere they discovered in their darkness, like I said a moment ago, the moment you turn off the light, darkness is immediate. It's not gradual. It's immediate. Try it out when you go home tonight. See how long it takes for the room to get dark. The moment you reject the light of God's Word, darkness is immediate. So don't even meander when somebody says, you know, 
I know what the church teaches, but let me suggest this. Don't even get in the conversation. Because if you're not rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word, they'll cut you off at the knees and you'll be floating down the river of doctrinal dishonesty. And the word of God will no longer mean what it does to you today. But once again, this is not new to God. I'll give you another quotation from Testimonies, Volume 4, page 234 and paragraph 2. Listen to this. Talking about how bad it's going to get. It says, men's hearts are no softer today than when Christ was upon the earth. They will do all in their power to aid the great adversary in making it as hard as possible for the servants of Christ. Just as the people did with Christ when he was upon the earth, they will, notice this, scourge with the tongue of slander and falsehood. They will criticize and turn against the servant of God the very efforts he is leading them to make. Now, let me make that. In other words, while God's servant is saying, this is the way of safety, this is the way of light, this is the way of truth, they will use their tongues to say to people, you don't want to go down that road. You don't want to leave the church. You don't want to turn away from your friends. They'll make relationships more important than God's word. They'll say, why would you want to leave us? As I like it, one young man, he's resting now in Jesus. Some of you that were in my Sabbath school class, you remember him. His name is Bud. He was a flight attendant for American Airlines. He was a pilot. Thank you, honey. He was a pilot for American Airlines, retired. And he was sitting in my class, in my Sabbath school class, and he said, he went to his pastor one day. Church is right down the way in Benton. He went to his pastor and said, Pastor, I want to let you know I won't be back. I don't have anything against you. I love you. I love the church, but I'm going where truth is being taught. When he passed away, that very pastor called me and said, we're doing his service at our church. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, he's our member. And God gave me some holy boldness. It's okay to be holy bold every now and then. God gave me some holy boldness, and I said to that pastor, now, you know, pastor, Bud made his decision and came over here to this church because he told you. He told me what he told you. He said he's not leaving you because he dislikes you, but he's coming where God has shown him the truth is. And I'm not having you at his funeral talk about he's in heaven. I got bold. So what's your schedule, I said to him. He said, what do you mean? I said, when can I meet with you? How about tomorrow at 9? Before he could even give me a time. I was in his office at 9 o'clock the next morning. Before I left my house over there on New Lake Road, God and I had a loud conversation. I was, if somebody saw me driving, they'd think I was talking to myself. Maybe nowadays they would think I was on a cell phone, but I was talking to God. I said, Lord, it's not about me. It's about your character. It's about your truth. It's about your righteousness. Go ahead of me and fix this thing. So I was on my way to that church to meet with that pastor. I was determined that Bud's commitment would not end on the flowery bed of compromise. And I walked into that church, and the pastor was not as arrogant as he was on the phone the day before because he was telling me, no, it's going to be here at our church. It's going to be here at our church. When I walked in, I said, he was showing me the foyer, and he escorted me to the office, and when I sat down, I said, he said, I, I, just, I, I just want to apologize for the way I came across yesterday. And I said, 
okay? I said, could I see the program? He showed me the program, and watch what he said. He said, and uh, can I ask you a question? He's asking me, he said, can I, can I say this? I said, what is it? So he had a statement in the bulletin for the funeral. He says, he's now resting in the arms of Jesus. I said, no, you can't say that. That's not scripturally correct. I said it respectfully. And some of you were at the funeral. It was at the time when the choir from Chile was here. Dieter may remember that choir, the Chilean choir. I want to tell you, the majority of people at that church were Adventists. And the pastor gave me complete, complete autonomy to decide what was said in that service. I did the service there, and then I gave him a nine-page study on what the Bible teaches about what happens when you die. Let me tell you something, brethren. If, you, if your backbone is crooked, you'll stand up. That's what I like about Joe. I tell you, I, I always liked Joe. Joe. I called Joe a zealot. Now, that's a good word. It's not a bad word. A zealot is one who will live and die for the truth. I've seen Joe in action. Sometimes he's around circles and people will make non-doctrinal, non-scriptural statements and Joe, Joe would find a very clever way to say, well, you know, that's not what the Bible says. And he would gently lead them back to what the Bible says and I'd, and I'd look at him and he'd go like this. Like, I got this. I appreciate you for that, Joe. You know, brethren, we have to be clever. We're not living in an age where truth is on sale. We're living where the character of God needs to be properly represented. So when people are criticizing and turning folk away from the truth, it is our responsibility to lovingly and kindly lead people back so that the character of Christ will be clearly seen because we are living in an age where stained glass religion has taken effect because darkness has become more appealing than light. And my second point, how do I know we're living in an age of stained glass religion? Because how we feel is more important than what we believe. How you feel. Today, religion appeals to the senses, but starves the intellect. If you want to look up the references, just go to a Christian concert. <laughs> the rooms are dark, just like the cathedrals of old. Intellect is suspended by lofty words, biased repetition, praises great and grand, but not what God demands. Look at some of those concerts. Look at some of what they call praise and worship services. It's a darkened room filled with misty, misty clouds, and people are swaying back and forth like they've been captured by some brain-sucking instrument. And if you think I'm the only one that thinks that way, I read an article from a, I read an article from a Sunday church. Listen to this. It was called RestoringKingdomBuilders.org, and the article was entitled "Do Christians Sometimes Go Mindless During Worship?" That was the article from a Sunday church. So just so you don't think that's something that I've noticed. And the guy that wrote the article says, I wanted, he talked about the worship service. He says, I wanted to walk out of church last Sunday morning, all because of the songs. During last Sunday's praise and worship time, the church, at church that I have been attending, I became very uncomfortable because we kept repeating the same phrase while singing a popular worship song called King of My Heart. He said two Sundays ago, the worship team led the congregation in singing the song, and I noticed that one phrase was repeated 22 times. You are good, oh God, you are good. He said God knows he's good. Why do we have to tell him 22 times? 
And then he says, which means we sang the same words 44 times. And he, ended the article, and he ended the article by saying, I wanted to run out of the service, get in my car, and drive anywhere. So it's not just what's trying to find its way in Adventism, but it's finding its way all around. The same Gregorian chants that fill these cathedrals in the Dark Ages. The monotone and syllabic chants that, as a psychologist says, the moment you repeat the same thing six times, it lowers the door in your brains and anything can come in unfiltered after that. And you wonder why people behave the way they do. You wonder why they think the way they do. And they're convinced that it's true because they've given their minds over and their consciences are seared with a hot iron. No wonder Jesus said what he did in Matthew 6 and verse 7. He said this about prayer, but I think it applies to everything. Listen to the words of Christ. Matthew 6 and verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. But that's not the case. I cite exhibit number one, the Mount Carmel showdown. When they got together on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets that had, had apostatized from God and the, the 400 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah, they got together all day long shouting and praising and cutting themselves and raising their voices to their God, waiting for their God to respond, but there was not a single voice in response. And Elijah got on his knees and prayed, if God be God, then the God who is God will respond by fire in his humble prayer. Move the hand of the living God. That's why today, be careful when you get into this broken record syndrome, as Mark Finley calls it, seven eleven songs, seven words repeated 11 times. Watch out when that happens. You get into the cycle where you almost give yourself over to, to what the psychologists call uh, a suspended animation. You are not in charge any longer. You are no longer responsible for what is taking place because you have surrendered all of your intellect to an outside source to determine how you respond on the inside. And we find that how you feel is more important today than what you believe. My third point is, how do I know that we are living in a stained glass age? Because error is exalted above truth. Look at ancient Israel. Look at Ezekiel 22, verse 26. This is not new, but Satan takes his time to develop his art, his craft. And if you think that Satan is weaker than he used to be, I'm giving you references to what he's been doing throughout the course of human history, from the Garden of Eden to the distortion of the children of Israel, as we read in Isaiah 5 and verse 20, now to the distortion of the priest of Israel, as we're going to read now in Ezekiel 22 and verse 26. He led ancient Israel to this depth. Look at the Bible, Ezekiel 22, 26. Speaking about ancient Israel, he says, her priests have violated my law and profane my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the what else? Unholy. Nor have they made the difference between the what? Clean, the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes, what? From my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. Let me pause and help you see what you didn't see. 
This is being said of those who kept the Sabbath. This is not being said of those who did not know about the Sabbath. What this commentary is in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26, is what happened to a people that did keep the Sabbath. They got to the place where the surrounding nations had so diluted and stained their minds that they turned their backs on honoring God's Sabbath. And God said, I'm profaned among them. They should have known better than anybody else. Brethren, let me make a point right here. We should be an example of how the Sabbath should be kept. But nowadays, there are Adventists that go to restaurants immediately after church. Think nothing of it. They plan ahead of time. I remember somebody called me and said, you know, we went to church today. We went to, and they mentioned the restaurant. I said, why'd you do that? You're home. You're not on the road. You can prepare a Sabbath meal. No, the Bible says, Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant. You should not be the reason to lead other people in violating God's Sabbath by your example. Going to shows and baseball games and amusement parks and, oh, we're just, it's a family day. Oh, brethren, understand the Sabbath is holy and so is God. Nowadays, even amongst us, there's a time when the Sabbath was actually kept from sunset to sunset. Nowadays, we're finding creative ways of saying God understands, He does understand, but make no mistake about it, God is not modified by the times. And God is not mocked. Today, God's truth has been filtered through the lenses of stained glass doctrines. But I want to let you know something. The Christian world has embraced two of the most dangerous doctrines, and I'm going to make a left turn that you didn't see coming. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on. Today, the Christian world has embraced two of the most dangerous doctrines that are going to bring the world and even the Adventist church to the greatest test that has ever faced. And those two doctrines are the immortality of the soul and the sacredness of Sunday. I'm going to share a quote with you and then I'm going to break it down. Look at this quote from the book, Darkness Before Dawn. Let me go back. Darkness Before Dawn, page 32 in paragraph 2. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. Now put your seatbelts on. I'm going to show you a series of articles. I'm going to take you through them very rapidly. We have seen the impact of spiritualism. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in the video games. It's in the movies. It's in the pulpits. It's in the commentary that goes from news broadcast to news broadcast. It's among family members from left to right. Everybody's in heaven. Now Michael Jackson's in heaven. Liberace's in heaven. The Rat Pack is in heaven. Everybody dies and goes to heaven no matter how they live. But very few in the world are looking at the impact of Sunday the way that God sees it. In 2015, when I went to Washington, D.C. to listen to the speech of Pope Francis, I listened very carefully. And with the ears that I have, I didn't miss anything. And I came back home and I preached a sermon about how, back then I preached how, how the Sunday law is going to come in through climate issues. 
not through somebody's job or some other situation. The Pope made it very, very clear. Before he, pro, be, before he shared that sermon in Washington, he had already talked to the evangelical leaders about the need for a climate change initiative. And this is in June of 2015. Look at this article. Global evangelicals side with the Pope's concern for climate change. And the article talks about that in specifics. I'm not going to take the time to go into the specifics. But sufficiently saying they sided with him. He, he expressed the climate change concerns. How fitting it was or how co coincidental or how providential it was that COVID provided us the perfect laboratory to see the impact of the, the climate. When people are traveling less, the, the skies were clear. Travel was down. You could see the skies in Los Angeles and then in India. The waters in Italy are clear. They're saying, if we could simply do something to slow down our use of fossil fuels and things that fill the atmosphere with pollutants, the world will heal itself. And Pope Francis, under the guidance of creative ways of bringing in Sunday, said, we need a climate change. And the evangelicals took his side. Then... This is a picture of the speech that Brad Walker and I heard when we were there invited by one of the local state senators. Senator Mike Boss invited me there, a Baptist senator. I was in his office that day when I told him about Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And I heard the Pope talk about to Congress, Pope to Congress, time to act on climate change and poverty and immigration. And it's amazing today, all three of those things are merged together. Look at the Afghanistan situation. Look at the climate that's surrounding our world. Look at the fires, the floods, the water disappearing, or too much water in certain places. Look at the mountain slides. Look at nature going wild. And the Pope is saying there's something wrong with the climate. He spoke to Congress. But let's go on further. This year, many of you don't know, there's, there's a conference coming up in November of this year, between October and November 2021, called COP26, Conference of Parties, Political leaders, religious leaders, uh, ecologists are gathering together to have this meeting between October and November of this year. And it's about what we can do to begin to repair the climate. It's called COP26. Look it up yourself. But look at the article. It's very interesting. In the details of the article, you find these words. Uniting the world to tackle climate change. Now, let me ask you, are you ready for this? Uniting the world, how? Watch this. This is coming up September 5th, 2021. It's called Climate Sunday. The evangelical communities around the world are pushing an initiative called Climate Sunday. It began in the United Kingdom, in Ireland, and in Scotland, and they are asking 10,000 churches to unite with them to, to establish a Sunday initiative in time for this COP26 in November of this year. They're saying, we owe it to God to fix the planet, and we want to show the papacy and the leaders of the world that we are doing our part to impact the climate. There's nothing wrong with doing your part to impact the climate, but you don't get to pick the day that we ought to get together on. And put on the backdrop of that, that's September 5th, 2021. September 19th, 2021 is the National Back to Church Sunday 
That has been going on for the last 25 years. That is happening in churches in our area and churches in the greater part of Illinois and the greater part of the nation. More than 11,000 churches in this nation have signed up to push a national back-to-church Sunday initiative. Put it all together, and you see what's happening. Brethren, we are on the cusp of eternity, and the devil has used stained glass to hide the issues. Look at this quote in the book Last Day Events. Page 125, and I'm closing now. He says, the Sunday movement, the what kind of movement? The Sunday movement is now making its way in darkness. The leaders are, say it together with me, concealing the true issues. They're stained glassing the issues. And many who unite in the movement do not themselves see whither the undercurrent is tending. They may be completely honest about saying, we do need to do something to fix our planet. And since we honor Sunday, let's do this honestly. They may have honest hearts, but they don't have a clue about the undercurrent. Stained glass religion conceals the truth and forward what has been recently termed alternative truth because untainted truth does not appeal to them any longer. Brethren, if you think that the Sunday movement is not afoot in this world, then you've got to be sleeping. But as I wind up, look at the words of Christ. Jesus said in John 12 and verse 35, Jesus said to them, speaking to his disciples, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. And he who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. You don't understand the undercurrents. It's taking you where you cannot see. Brethren, more than ever before, the people of God need to be a people that stand firmly on the undiluted truth of God's Word. That's why at a time when we have more methods than ever before of accessing God's Word. We have more ways digitally, small, large Bibles in every language, in every size, in every travel size. The question is, what is wrong? What has gone wrong? Here's what's gone wrong. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul forecasts what's going to happen. But even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds, think of stained glass in this context, whose minds the God of this age has done what? Blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The medieval churches in the dark ages did not want the purity of the gospel to be seen, so they built stained glass. In modern times, false doctrines are eclipsing the purity of God's Word. Today, people are more comfortable with diluted light than pure light. Why? Because the devil knows that if the glory of God should shine on them, they would wake up. But I'm going to say today, my last point is the most beautiful one. Light will prevail in spite of the darkness. Come on, say amen. God will make the final move. There may be a lot of darkness, but God is not done yet. There may be a lot of false teachings, but God is not done yet. And some of you are here today because God is calling your heart. 
God is saying to you, it's time to come out of darkness into this marvelous light. You have seen, you have heard, you've examined, and you may still be in the journey of understanding more, but you know already that God has led you here. Because you haven't heard this kind of message anyplace else. And at a time of preferred darkness, God is going to break the stained glass windows. <laughs> oh, I love Isaiah the prophet when he said in Isaiah 9 and verse 2, notice what he says, this is yet to be fulfilled in its fullness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. If you used to be, let me ask, the, if you used to be of a different religion before you accepted the Adventist message, raise your hand. Amen. Praise God. Can you say amen, somebody? You know why? Because those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Amen, church. And the Bible says the people in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Praise God, the light is still too intense for Satan's stained glass to eliminate the plan of eternal God. In the book Christian Service, oh, I praise God for this, and this is one of my last quotations before we wind this thing up. I have one more, but I've got to make it complete. Christian Service, page 38, paragraph 4. We are told it is a wonderful privilege. It is what, my friends? A wonderful privilege to be able to understand the will of God as revealed in the sure word of prophecy. When I study Daniel, when I study Revelation, I get excited. You want to get excited? Get back in prophecy. I was so excited when Dan Houghton was saying to me on the phone, he said, he said this year he decided to do something else. He said, I read through Revelation many times, but I read it again, and I read it again, and my prayer was, Father, is there anything that I'm missing? So I want you to know the Seventh-day Adventist church is in the hand of godly men and women. Can somebody say amen? God has not passed the torch or the baton to somebody who is eager to destroy this church. It is a wonderful privilege to be able to understand the will of God as revealed in the sure word of prophecy. This, li listen to this now, th this places on us a what? Heavy responsibility. God expects us to impart to others the knowledge he has given to us. It is his purpose that divine and human instrumentalities shall unite Oh, sorry. It is his purpose, thank you, honey, that divine and human instrumentalities shall unite in the proclamation of the warning message. We've got a grand responsibility. We are called to unite with divine agencies to proclaim this last warning. So when Revelation 18 reads as it does, Revelation 18 verse 1 after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Do you know who that is? We are the messengers. We are the angels who God is going to use just as he used the prophets of old, the apostles of old. They were the angelos, the messengers. And God said, I'm sending you forth to proclaim this light. Peter the Apostle knew that. Peter the Apostle knew that. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen generation. Say it with me, church. But you are a what? Chosen generation. What else? A royal priesthood. Or what else? Holy nation. His own what? 
special people, and here it is, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of what? Darkness into his what? Marvelous light. I'll bring you behind the scenes. A few weeks ago, I had a, pastor, I had a, a Bible study with Pastor Philip Fritz. I don't know if I told you. Did I tell you? One more time. After six hours of Bible study, he said, I'm angry, but I'm happy. I said, I know why you're angry, why you're happy. He said, because today God brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light. That ought to be a hallelujah right there. A minister of 40 years, God has ignited that man. He said, the Pentecostals told me I didn't have any more sermons, but he said, now I know what they meant. He said, because I was preaching the wrong message. Now I got a new message. Oh, come on. Say, say amen, somebody. He said, I got a message now. And I looked at that man and I said, to, on the authority of God's word, I said, God is about to make a divine move in your life. Are you ready? What I was saying to him is, you ain't going back to darkness to proclaim darkness. You're going back to proclaim light. You can reach folk that I can't reach. God is saying it's time. And lastly, my last quote, thank you for being patient. I know your food is smelling good. I, I haven't eaten yet either, but just relax. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, page 195 in paragraph 1. Servants of God endowed with power from on high. Where is our power going to come from, church? From on high. With their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, went forth fulfilling their work and proclaiming the message from heaven. What happened? Souls that were scattered all through the religious bodies answered the call, and the precious were hurried out of the doomed churches as Lot was hurried out of Sodom before her destruction. To God be the glory. We've got a privilege to call them out. We've got to call them out. I don't want to stand before God and he say, what did you do with that congregation? Did you call them out? Yes, I called them out. Did your members do it? Father, ask them. We must all give an account to this glorious gospel that God has given to us. And so in a stained glass generation, remember what Peter said. And so we have a prophetic word confirmed. 2 Peter 1 verse 19. We have a prophetic word confirmed. The King James Version says we have a more sure word of prophecy. Would you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So I end with a question today. Who is willing to turn on the light? Who is willing in here to turn on the light? Who is willing to turn on the light? If you want to turn on the light, why don't you stand? But I'm going to go a little further today. We need an army of dedicated workers who wants to stand before God and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. God wants people that are discontent with Satan gaining the foothold of precious lives and earthquakes and fires and floods. He's sweeping people off into eternity. Every day somebody's dying with want of the knowing the gospel truth. It's our responsibility to get it to them. It's our responsibility. Nobody but you can do it. You could reach people I could never reach. God is saying, do you want to be a part of those who turn the light on? I want to pray right now, and I want you to just believe with me that God is about to ignite your life. God is about to take your feet where you don't want to go. 
and then change and transform your heart. I'm praying today, Father, that you'll give our brothers and sisters new eyes, that they won't see their neighbors as just people that they know as living next door, but that they'll see their eyes and say, I want to see your eyes in the kingdom. I don't want the fires of hell to consume the opportunities that you've had. I could be the very link between salvation and destruction, and I want to do my part to break down the stained glass that has hindered you from seeing the truth of God's Word. Oh, precious Lord, today we're living in a stained glass masquerade. And people don't see what you've shown us. They don't understand what you've revealed to us. But it's not our truth. It's not our message. It's not our word. It's your word. We haven't written this scenario. We haven't written this script. It's your script. And we want to be humble about following it. But we don't want anybody else to be left out. So, Lord, send us forth as laborers into a ripe vineyard. Help us to be diligent, prayerful, fearless, fearless of the enemy. Don't even allow him to put thoughts in our minds that people won't like us. You don't like him. Don't allow him to impose on us the way he feels about you. May we go forth in love and for a lost soul, for a family member, for a friend. May we be creative and may we be determined. May we push and do all that we can so that when our work is done, you'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We ask this, Father, not for our glory, not for numbers, but for precious souls. Not for statistics, but for kingdom people for folk that are being snatched from the grip of the enemy, for, from pastors that have not understood it, from clergy that don't know better, from leaders that haven't heard this message. They are not all guilty. Some of them just don't know. Help us to do our part. And when it is all done, may we say, as you have, to God be the glory. Thank you for hearing, Father. Thank you for speaking to us today. May we do everything for your kingdom's glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen.